0: dream. And his father would end up following him to Madrid and he would put in a local newspaper uh, an ad which said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. The story would go on and Hemingway would write, the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office there were 800 Pacos. All looking for forgiveness. <laughs> a pretty funny story. Paco was a, a popular name at the time. And the story, though fictitious, uh, I think it shows uh, something about our world and our lives. That people are in desperate need of reconciliation. With each other, but also with God. And like the father in this story, God has written something similar to us in his word... And that's our passage in the book of Malachi this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word together. Father, this morning we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, this opportunity to uh, open your word and, and hear from you. So this morning I pray for those of us, which is really all of us, who need to be reconciled to others and to you. May you open doors for that to happen. And may you bring healing to our relationships with other people, uh, but more importantly, with you, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, either in the pew in front of you or underneath the pew in front of you. Uh, Turn with me there uh, to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. If you have a church Bible. It's on page 676. And so in the book of Malachi, we've been looking at different disputes between the people of Israel and between God. And so uh, this morning, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12 of chapter 3. And so today's passage is split up into three parts. If you have a bulletin, uh, you can see those three sections there. First, we'll talk about God's faithful promise. Then we'll talk about Israel's continued questioning. And then finally, we'll look at a picture of of that promise. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, Let me read that first section, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 7 for us. This is God speaking. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. I'll stop reading there for us. So last week we talked about how Israel had questioned God's character, as they've done throughout this book, uh, which is why in verse 6 here, uh, God makes this statement to clarify what is true about himself. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Maybe you've heard that statement before. If you like big theological terms, uh, this is what's known as God's immutability. God does not change uh, because he exists outside of time. For someone to change, there must be some amount of time that has passed between the before and the after of the change. God does not change because he is perfect. For someone to change, they either get better or they get worse, but God is already the best that there is, so God cannot get better and he cannot get worse. And God does not change because he knows everything, right? For someone to change, they must receive some new information or some new insight, but God already knows everything, so God can't change in that way either. And so here's God's words, I, the Lord, do not change. And so there's this clear cause and effect going on here in in these verses. It is because God does not change that Israel has not been destroyed. Israel could have been destroyed during their exile to Babylon, but here they are, they've returned back to their home, they're back in Jerusalem. Israel could have been destroyed many times throughout their history, but God protected them. And Israel could be destroyed now in this chapter because of their clear rebellion against God. But God is choosing not to destroy them because he does not change, because God made a promise to them, uh, and to their father Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We've looked at this promise from God before, but I'll read it again for us. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Because God does not change, he's continuing to be faithful to this very promise and so Israel has not been destroyed. But despite God's promise, Israel has still turned away from him. Israel has changed, even though God hasn't changed. And God, he, in verse 7, gives them a brief history lesson. He reminds them that ever since their ancestors were around, they they still haven't kept his decrees. And at the end of verse 7, we see a really powerful promise from God. Return to me, and I will return to you. God is saying that despite all that Israel has done, despite all of their sin, all of the corruption and poverty and injustice that they are seeing in their society, if they choose to turn away from all of that, and if they choose to turn themselves back towards God, he will be right there to meet them again. See, if God does not change, then God's posture from the very beginning has been a posture of reconciliation. His arms have always been open. He's always been ready to welcome his people back in when they run from him. And if God does not change, then that will always be the case. You see, the greatest lie ever told is the lie that we are too far gone. The lie that our sin is too great. That we can't go back to God. The lie that he won't accept us, or welcome us back, or forgive us, but there he is, waiting for us with open arms. The best thing about God not changing is that his love for us does not change. And the fact that God does not change is really a blessing to us, it's not a burden, it's something that we can find comfort in as people. While the world around us, our circumstances, everything seems to be changing, God doesn't change. And so my question for you this morning is, a simple one, do you need to return to God? It's really a question that uh, Malachi is asking Israel here. So if your answer to that question is yes, then you need to know that God is right there ready to return to you. See, God desperately wants to be reconciled to us. God wants the rift that has formed between him and his people to be mended and healed. God is like the father in the Ernest Hemingway story. He has pursued after us. And he has posted a message to us here in his word, return to me and I will return to you. And so you might be wondering, well, that that sounds great. But how? How can we return to God? Israel, uh, they have that same question. So let's move on to our next section for this morning. Israel's continued questioning. I'll read verses 8 through 9 for us. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. You see, throughout the book of Malachi, we've seen Israel consistently question God about these things. When he declares something to them, they either ask for clarification or they doubt that what he has said to them is true. And this passage here is no different. If God wants Israel to return to him, then they want to know just how they can do that. They might be thinking, well, God, you know, we're physically back in Israel. We've physically returned to where we're supposed to be, so we're not sure how we can physically return. Or it might just be thinking that uh, God's request isn't so simple to them. Maybe they think that they are too far gone. See, sometimes... Though God reaches out to us and promises to return to us if we return to him, we're still not sure how we can go back. We might ask the same question that Israel is asking here. How am I to return? So here's how. Returning really means repentance. And the word repentance literally means to turn around. To return means to do a 180, to, to turn around and to pursue a new direction. It means to turn away from the life that I was pursuing and to turn myself towards God and to run after him. Repentance requires both an immediate change in the moment, but also a lasting change, a, a commitment to continuing to change. I turn around here and now, I'm also choosing to continue to change as I move on into the future. Returning to God doesn't mean that we have it all figured out. Doesn't mean that we're all put together. Means that we're just choosing to begin the process of moving towards God. And so I think to return means going back to the basics. When life was simple, when living and having a relationship with God was simple, for Israel, this might have meant looking back at the commandments that God had given them. Might mean following the law. We talked about how they would offer sacrifices that uh, were false and weren't sacrificing in the way they were supposed to. And for us, going back to the basics might mean having a simple conversation with God. Praying for the first time in what may be a long time opening our Bibles again, to read the Gospels and to see the teaching of Jesus for ourselves and to see the life that he lived. So here's my second question for you this morning. How can you return to God starting today? And if you do, because God does not change, I can promise you 100% certainty that God will return to you. But God, he doesn't answer Israel's question directly, as we see in those verses. His response to how they are to return to him uh, is to accuse them of robbing him, which seems kind of weird. Uh, But Israel, uh, of course, they want to know how exactly they have robbed God. In this book of Malachi, we've seen God address Israel's practice of offering false sacrifices in an attempt to keep the best for themselves, And now he turns to a different practice that they have. We can guess from these verses that just like their sacrifices, Israel has not been uh, giving their best to God through their tithing. We know that Israel was supposed to give 10%. That's where we get our 10% idea from. And so God says that as a result, the whole nation of Israel is under a curse, which we talked about that a couple weeks ago too. We defined a curse as the simple removal of God's blessing from his people. And so this accusation from God is not so much about the money itself, but it's about the heart behind what Israel is doing with their money. When it comes to finances, God has given them everything that they have, and because of that, they're simply stewards of what God has given them. And so for Israel to neglect their tithes and offerings was to steal from God because really they were keeping for themselves what was actually God's in the first place. This isn't a sermon about money, but for Israel to return to God is for them to return back to what the practice of giving should have been, tithing of 10% of their income. Not out of obligation or because they feel like that's what they have to do, but out of thanksgiving, right, and because they, they want to. You see, the further that we get in our wandering from God, the more focused on the self or self-centered we become. As God becomes less in our lives, the self becomes more. And in a lot of ways, the self can become the new God for people. Right? We begin to think that we deserve the credit for what we've done, for what we have, for who we are. We start to think, yeah, I'm pretty great. I deserve this. I deserve more than this. But this, again, is one of the greatest lies that the enemy can place in our hearts. So to return to God is to have humility. To have humility is to not think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. To return to God is to make the realization that God does not change, yes, But it's also to make the realization that he has been so faithful to us and to his promises over the course of our lives. And to make the realization that everything that we have, everything that we are, comes from him. It comes from him alone. See, when we make that realization, our lives actually become so much better than anything that we could ever accomplish for ourselves. And God, he doesn't just say this. But he shows Israel a picture of what this life looks like. And so let's look at our last section for this morning, a picture of the promise. I'll read our final verses, verses 10 through 12, for us this morning. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And so God gives to Israel a very specific picture of how they can return to him. If they've been withholding their tithes and offerings from him, then to return to God is to simply bring their tithes back to him. And God says this because he wants there to be food in his house. And this is kind of funny to us, right? Why does God need food in his house if he doesn't have a physical body and he doesn't eat? Um, But there's a reason he wants there to be food in his house so that we can enjoy it. We can gather from this statement that currently God's house is empty, but God is referring here to a practice of ancient Israel. It's what's known as the year of Jubilee, if you've heard of that. Israel, they had a practice that every seven years they would would just take a break. They would work for six years, They would harvest, and they would store up their grain. And this is an agrarian society, so this doesn't make uh, as much sense to us now. Uh, But they would build up storehouses, and they would save. And on the seventh year, they would literally not work at all, and they would just let the ground take a break. That sounds crazy to us in our culture today, right? Where, you know, for us to take a year off of work, I mean, that sounds wonderful to some of you, right? but that's not what we do. Uh, but also, every seven seven years, or roughly every 50 years, Israel would have you know, what, is, what is really the year of Jubilee, and that year, the, the prisoners, the, the captives, the slaves of their society, they would be set free. Financial debt would be forgiven, property would be returned to its rightful owner, and then they would, they would just party. They would, they would celebrate uh, for the entire year, right? And they would use the, the storehouses from God's temple uh, to, to fund this, right? And so the fact that Israel isn't giving 10% of their income means that God's house is empty of food. And this means that they can't rest. They can't celebrate. They can't be thankful for what God has given them. The year of Jubilee was a time when things would be set right. Society would balance itself out again. And so the reason that God is, or that Israel is seeing so much corruption and poverty and injustice that we've talked about uh, throughout this series, the reason that they're seeing all of that is because they've n- neglected this practice. Right, they haven't been faithful to God in, in their tithing and so they can't rest. And so here in, in, in these verses in Malachi, is really the only place in Scripture where God invites his people to test him. In other places, we read that, God should, or that we should not put God to the test. But Israel, they can hear because God has invited them to do it. And he promises them that if they start to give to him again, that he will open the floodgates of heaven and he will pour out blessing upon them. He's saying, return to me, and I will return to you. Not only will God bless them, but he will protect their crops. So he'll bless them moving on into the, into the future. And other nations, will, they'll see all of this take place. And they'll know that God has blessed Israel. See, this is God's heart for us. I have a feeling that God wants to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessing upon us too. God's offer is still on the table for us. God still wants us to return to him, and if we do, he will return to us. And so here's how, how I know that that's true, right? That the offer is still on the table. God has already returned to us. God has upheld his part even before we even had a chance to uphold ours. God sent his son, Jesus, into the world. Jesus lived a sinless life, died a death on the cross that we deserve. Jesus rose again in three days. And because he did, through faith in him, we can have eternal life with God. It's because of Jesus that we know that God doesn't change. God always promised that his son would come and to save us. And his son did. And despite our rebellion, God did not turn away from us, but chose to send Jesus into the world anyways. It's through Jesus that God wants to bless us. You know, I still think God might be saying to us, test me in this, because I think God wants to open the floodgates of heaven for us. Maybe not pouring out food, but pouring out his grace and his mercy, his love, his spirit. Maybe not protecting our crops, but protecting our hearts from everything that goes on around us. So my last question to you this morning, are you open to God's blessing? Does this sound good to you to have the floodgates of heaven open and for God to pour out his blessing upon us? Do you desire this for your life? Do you know that God wants this for you? Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your heart is is for us. We thank you that uh, through your word, we can see your heart. And God, it's humbling to to know that you love us in this way. That even in our, our wanderings, even as we drift from you, as we get lost, God, that you will always be there for us ready to welcome us back. God, we don't deserve it, but you've given it to us anyway. And we just thank you for that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.